Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and this will be the last sermon in our series on the study of the church. Next Sunday, we'll pick up in Matthew where we left off, Matthew chapter 11. And uh, I hope that it's been a series that's been educational, uh, encouraging. Uh, I I hope it's been something that you've walked away from feeling like you needed that, that we needed that. And we want to close that series of sermons talking about our Reformation heritage. Um, I think we, we, we are situated about 505 years after Reformation Day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany. But it is one of those historical events from which we still receive both light and heat. We are direct descendants, maybe indirect, it would be more accurate, indirect descendants of the Protestant Reformation as as Baptists, as Protestants. Um, And what God did through figures like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and and the English Reformers and the Puritans and and on down through history to our modern day, we we can trace our lineage, our ecclesiastical, our church lineage to this moment in history. Um, It was 1517, and Martin Luther does this this act that he had no idea that would spark such a a controversial and uh, influential movement. Uh, And sometimes when it comes to historical movements, it's it's a bad... uh, a bad move to attribute to just one cause. You know, that's like saying that the, the independence, uh, the, the war for independence can be narrowed down to just one event instead of multiple. But, but in some cases, it's true that there, there can be an event that's, that can be traced back to. And it was this moment when, when Martin Luther nails his 95 Theses, uh, detailing all his, his problems and his concerns and what came out of that was a recovery of the gospel. It was the, the recovery, the rediscovery, if you will, of the, the power of the gospel, the authority of the gospel, the, how the gospel ought to shape who's in the church and how the church happens. And we started this series talking about a gospel pattern church, if you remember that. And that's what the Reformation was about, was recovering a gospel pattern church. And uh, when you look at the Reformation, it was the recovery of the good news of the gospel. It was a recovery of the gospel from the, the clutches of the Catholic Church, which had essentially turned the gospel into salvation by works, which was such a huge change from uh, what the Scripture teaches and from what early church believed and, and what ended up being rediscovered was that we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so we, we, we know all of this. Hopefully a lot of this sounds familiar. But I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is that the Protestant Reformation is, is an example of how a church 
both a single church and a group of churches can lose what really matters. And that's the gospel. They can lose the true and precious gospel. And when we think about the, the Protestant Reformation, uh, really it's, it's often summarized with five doctrines called the five solas. And sola just is a Latin word for meaning alone. And uh, those five solas were essentially that, that we are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, by Christ alone, in Christ alone, through Christ alone, so solus Christus, don't get hung up on the different endings, it's just Latin, according to and revealed by Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and for God's glory alone, soli deo Gloria, so sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Those are what summarize the recovery. And, and if we could summarize it in a statement instead of just titles, this is essentially what it is, is that Christians, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That, that is what the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign in salvation. And, and because He's sovereign in salvation, He receives all the glory. And we know how to be saved. And everything we, we need to know to be saved and how to be saved is revealed in Scripture. And that Scripture is all we need. It's the final authority. And what it teaches us is that for Scripture to teach us salvation, we are told it's by God's grace through faith in Christ. And so as wonderful as the Protestant Reformation was, I'm afraid we missed just how needed it was. It, it was so needed because for these, to us, they sound like, well, duh, right? We, that's what the Bible says. But can you imagine being in a, in a time where this sounded radical? It was so radical that eventually led to what was called the Counter-Reformation. And this was the Catholic Church trying to suppress what was happening through the Protestant Reformation. That's how radical this was. And so if it's possible for, for this to happen for a church and for churches to lose their way, we, we have to be aware and be on guard against thinking that it couldn't happen today, that, that somehow Poplar Spring couldn't lose its way. That we couldn't lose sight of what really matters. What the Protestant Reformation really teaches us is that no church, no tradition, no denomination can settle down into inattentive complacency with our guard let down on cruise control. No church can be lulled into thinking that their tradition is without flaws. That their pastors or their Denomination is above questioning or examination by the Word of God. So while we've, we've studied the doctrine of the church and, it, and it, this series is coming to an end, what I want you to understand is just because the series is coming to an end doesn't mean that, that we, we stop examining what we do as a church. We never cease examining what we do as a church in light of Scripture. That's a, that's a struggle that doesn't go back just to the Protestant Reformation. It's actually a struggle that goes all the way back to the early church. And I want to show you that this morning. When we look in Acts chapter 20, 
we see that Paul is about to depart from Ephesus, and he's giving his parting words. He has solemn words for the elders and for the church there in Ephesus. And what he says is instructive for us for thinking about what is our, to be our constant state as a church. What is to be our default mindset? And so this morning, I want to show you that if you remember nothing else, I hope you remember this. This is the big takeaway today. Because the church has been given the truth, the church must guard against straying and being led astray. So there's an active and a passive side to this. There's straying, which means we choose to go astray. But then there's being led astray where we're not paying attention, and then the next thing we know, we've gone far away off. So again, because the church has been given the truth, the church must guard against straying and being led astray. And so the first part of this is that we have been given the truth. And we see this in verses 25 through 27 in the middle of what Paul is saying in verse 22, he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I know that chains and afflictions are awaiting me, but I want to finish my course, the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. What was that? To testify to the gospel of God's grace. So this is what Paul's been about. He's been proclaiming God's grace. Now notice right after that, he says, and I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So Paul equates preaching the kingdom which, with testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So, so Paul has preached the gospel to the Ephesians. And, and there were believers there. And there was a church there. And there were elders in that church. And Paul says, you're never going to see me again. These are my parting words. If you go on in verse 26, he says, I know you'll never see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. So because of this truth that, that Paul is departing, he says, Therefore, in, in light of this, I, I won't see you again, and I declare myself innocent of your blood. Now, this is not Paul saying, I'm washing my hands of you because you guys are just so bad, and I give up, and you know, you're on your own. What he's saying is, when we look at verse, 12, verse 27, he says, I've declared to you the whole plan of God. The reason he can wash his hands, in a sense, is to say, I've told you everything you need to know. I've declared the whole plan of God. Paul says, I did not shrink back or avoid telling you what God's divine plan is. And therefore, there's nothing left for Paul to say. And now he is entrusting the church in Ephesus to the overseers. So he can say, I'm innocent because I've proclaimed the gospel to you. You know what the gospel is. You know what truth is. And now it's time to hand it over to you. And so this divine plan is declared and entrusted to the church in Ephesus. And that can be same, uh, the same could be said for us, that, that God has entrusted his gospel, his divine plan to us. He's given his, his, his divine will in his word. He's entrusted it to the elders and to the church, to every single one of us. We have also been given God's divine plan. What matters is what we do with it. Paul preached the kingdom. He preached the gospel. He declared the word of God. And they had heard so much that Paul says, I'm innocent. So, so no charge can be laid at Paul's feet that 
if, 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 if the Ephesian church happens to go astray, they can't come back and say, Paul, you didn't tell us about this part. We weren't equipped for this. You left this part out. That page got ripped out of the training manual, and we were flying by the seat. No, Paul says, you have everything you need. It's not something that they could be led astray because Paul forgot something or he neglected something. And the same is true of us. We cannot claim if a church, as a church, if we go astray, that it's because God has failed to give us what we need to keep us close to Him. We can't. And so it's, it's worth noting here that, one, that this divine instruction is meant to be the foundation. And, and that's, that's what one of my great prayers for this, sermon of ser- this series of sermons has been, is that we would see that we have everything we need in Scripture to be the church that Jesus would have us to be and to do what He would have us to do, how He would have us to do it. And so we've been given the truth. We've been given the truth. We've been entrusted with it just as the church in Ephesus was. And because of that, we need to be on guard against straying and being led astray. We see this in verses 28 through 31 where Paul says, look at what he says. He, twice he uses the language of guarding and alertness. Look at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. Right? You see that? Then you skip down to verse 31, and what does he say? Therefore, be on the alert. So twice, Paul is using this language of wake up, pay attention, be on guard, be on alert. Now, who is he talking to here? He's talking to the elders of the church. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. So when it, when it comes to leading the church and making sure that the church does not stray, one of the primary groups that the Lord places that responsibility on is your elders. We are tasked and charged with making sure that we are on guard. But, but let's unpack what he says. Number one, he says, first of all, The elders must guard themselves. Do you see that in verse 28? Be on guard for yourselves. Watch yourself. Watch your life. Watch your teaching. Watch your doctrine. Be on guard for yourself. It's so easy to to be so concerned with with the affairs of the church and with with the things that, that call our attention that you neglect yourself. Pray for your elders. Pray for us that we would not neglect the Word of God and time in prayer as a substitute, uh, that we would seek other things that would, that would be a substitute for those. He, elders, Paul says, he says, be on your guard. Be on guard for yourselves. So first of all, we are to guard ourselves to make sure that we're not going astray, that we're not being led astray. But then secondly, the elders are to be on guard for all the flock. What does he say? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Your elders are charged with being on guard for you. Your elders are to be giving attentive care to what is being taught to the sheep, making sure that you're not being led astray. And it's worth noting that the verb that's used here is in the present tense. And all that simply means is that this is an ongoing habit. We are to be regularly on guard 
And so used in this way for, for elders and by extension you as a church, we are to all be constantly, habitually examining and guarding. Are, are we straying off the path? Now you might say, why? Why should your elders be ever vigilant? Well, Paul says why. He says, you have been appointed as overseers, caretakers of the flock, which the Holy Spirit has appointed. So as elders, the Holy Spirit has given the flock to us to oversee. And the Holy Spirit has given it to us. We, we didn't choose. Let's go one step further. Uh, God gave all of you to us elders. And God gave us elders to all of you. And the Holy Spirit has appointed that. And so he says this is... This, the, uh, the Holy Spirit has appointed you uh, as overseers, and he says, to shepherd the church of God. This is God's church. This is God's flock. And so the elders are to guard themselves. They are to guard the flock. But, but really, they are to shepherd the flock. Look at, look at what Paul says. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock to do what? You, like dot, 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 be on guard, dot, 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 what? To shepherd the church of God. To shepherd, to lead, to care. The church of God, it's His church. And this statement is driven home even more, but he says it's a church which He purchased with His own blood. And so your elders are charged with being on alert. If you skip down to verse 31, again, be alert. So Paul is telling the Ephesian elders to lead in being on guard. And the expectation, I think, is, is that... They would lead the church as a whole to be on guard. So Paul's telling the Ephesian elders, be alert, pay attention, shepherd. But here's the thing, if, if we just leave it at that, we might fill in that word shepherd with whatever we think it should mean. Shepherd means X or shepherd means Y. Shepherd. But what does Paul say? When we look at verses 29 through 30, Paul tells them exactly why and how the flock is to be shepherded. Look at verse 29. He says, I know, so all of those things, be on guard, why? I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. There it is in verse 31 again. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. So why, why is this so important? Because Paul knows that danger is coming. There is a real danger. He says, savage wolves, that is cruel and vicious people. They're, they're like wolves, Wolves have no love for the sheep. Wolves care nothing for their well-being. Their only desire is to destroy and consume and to ruin. And it's not by accident. A wolf does not accidentally hunt the sheep. That's what it does. And Paul says wolves will come in among. So they'll come in from the outside but then not only that, he says they are already inside. He says there are people there already that when I leave, once I'm gone, they will spring up. Men will rise up. Look at how he describes it. Even from your own number. 
So Paul understands that the church is continually at risk from without and from within. And what will they do? Will they look at the helpless sheep? Will they look at them and have mercy and pity and spare them? No, what does Paul say? They will come in not sparing the flock. They will come, and what will they do? They will distort the truth in order to lure away disciples into following them. Now, notice, the, notice how uh, sinister this is. These are people who are standing up, and their desire is to draw people away from Christ and to lure disciples into following them. They are willing to distort the truth of God in order that people would follow them and not Jesus. And Paul says some of them are already in the church. So, the wolves want the sheep to follow them. And we might ask, why on earth would a wolf want a sheep to follow them? It's pretty obvious. So Paul is very specific here about the parameters he has in mind. What is the, the concern that Paul has here? It's for truth. Elders are to shepherd people. Why? Because there will come people who will not teach truth. They will not want to lead you to truth. They will not want you to grow in truth. And so it, it would be helpful to think of your elders as stewards and shepherds. We are stewards of the gospel, the truths of God's word, but we're also shepherds. Elders are entrusted with the, the ministry of the word. And so notice, they are stewards who bring the word to the sheep. As an elder and, and as the other elders, we, we are in charge with making sure that, that what is taught is right and true. That you are taught the word of God. So we are stewards who guard the word of God and bring it to you. But we're also shepherds. With one hand, we bring the word of God to you. And with the other hand, we guide the sheep to meet with the truth. Do you see what Paul's getting at? We steward and we shepherd. And so we bring the sheep to the word. And that's why we have to be on guard. That's why you have to be on guard. And so what was our main idea again? Remember, it's because the church has been given the truth, the church must guard against straying and being led astray. Paul tells the elders, guard themselves. Why? Because if they don't, they might lead sheep astray. But he also cautions against wolves. Why? Because they would seek to lead people astray. And so what Paul's not talking about is theological nitpicking. He's not saying, he's not talking about minor theological issues. He's talking about the, the doctrines that matter. Orthodox, necessary beliefs in order to be saved. And so how do churches stray? Let, let's spend our last couple minutes talking about how churches stray and how they're led astray. It happens. We've seen it in history. It happens. And how does it happen? Well, first of all, it happens when a church wavers on its commitment to the authority of Scripture. When Scripture is no longer the final authority, then anything else can be the final authority. And that's when they start going off in any and all directions. If, if the final authority is cultural relevance, you'll do anything to be culturally relevant. 
If the final authority is attendance, you'll do anything to have more people. If Scripture is not the final authority, you begin to compromise. And so we're not talking about minor disagreements here, but we're talking about abandoning first order, first tier doctrines. In other words, it looks like this. When scriptural authority goes, that's when the things like, well, Jesus wasn't really God. Those types of things start being said. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Sin and hell are just concepts that there's not really a place called hell and so on. And so the first, the first sign that a church is being led astray or has gone astray is when it begins to compromise and it abandons necessary and central orthodox teachings of Scripture. Now, that's the obvious, but it happens more subtly. It's more subtle when the pastor doesn't preach texts, doesn't preach doctrines, but instead tells you stories and jokes. He doesn't expound Scripture and expose you to God's truth, but it's more of his opinions Sometimes his tirades, his political preferences. A church that is fed a steady diet of these sugary types of sermons are at risk and prone to find themselves going astray. So a church that wants to make sure that they don't go astray would want, should want their pastor to preach the whole counsel of God. The easy text and the hard text and so one way for us to guard against straying from Scripture is to cling to Scripture. If we have a loose grasp of Scripture and we're willing to let go at a moment's notice, then, then any wave that comes along will sweep us away. But if we're clinging like we're holding on for dear life, as if we are in the middle of a hurricane and holding on for dear life to a piece of, of wood or a tree or, or a pier, if we cling to Scripture that way, it's not impossible, but it's less likely. So the first way a church goes astray is by wavering on their commitment to Scripture. The second way is that the church itself, both elders and lay people, all of us don't examine what is actually being taught. If you remember, if you go back just a few, few chapters in Acts chapter 17, you remember the story of the Berean believers, right? The Jews in Berea. They were uh, examples for us. Luke tells us that the Jews who became believers did so as they listened to Paul preach. And it says in Acts 17 verse 11 that Luke, Luke tells us that they received the word with all eagerness. And that's it. They said, we like Paul, we believe what he's saying, let's go to lunch. No. What did they do? After the, the preaching, it says they went and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so it's not such a far-fetched application for us to say that, that we ought to all be Berean, examining the scriptures a church that exhibits a Berean mindset and a Berean spirit is one that is more difficult to lead astray than one where everyone just follows what the pastor says because the pastor or some preacher said it. You may, you may do that to me, or you may do it to your favorite celebrity preacher, whether it's John MacArthur, John Piper, Mark Dever, whoever it is, whatever they say, 
But are you examining the scriptures to see if these things are so? And some, excuse me, some of the reasons that congregations are, are like this, if I, can, if I can address this, is that I think there are at least three. One reason is, if I can say this, is laziness. There, there's just no energy or desire to expend energy on examining what is taught. Now, I'm not saying that you don't trust. I think there is a level of trust, right? You, you trust me. You, you trust your elders. You trust your Sunday school teachers. But it's like the old saying goes, trust but verify, right? If someone's going to say the word of God says X... Does it not, a good word, behoove us to examine and make sure that it really does say X? But there's another reason. Often it's, it's a cult of personality. Uh, the, in other words, the pastor has successfully trained people not to question his teaching and preaching, and so people don't. Now, my, my promise and my commitment to you is, is, is I don't want you to feel that way. I don't want you to think that you can't point out. Now, I'm not just going to fold over if you come and say, well, I think this verse says this. But I'm not going to, you know, uh, you know spiritually manhandle. I'm not, not going to do a spiritual Krav Maga uh, or, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on you to, make, to show you how wrong you are, right? But sometimes churches are trained that way. But there's another as, a side of this cult of personality where the, the falsehood creeps in under a shiny veneer, which you guys don't have to worry about in this case. A charming personality, cool rhetoric. rhetoric again, you don't have to worry about that. But, but, but the packaging allows it to be snuck in, right? Sometimes it comes in, in, in a cool book or a cool DVD curriculum. You know, it's just so shiny, Nice. But the reality is, is, is we all bear a responsibility for making sure that we as a church are committed to and operating under the truth of God's word. We've been given the truth and we have to be on guard. The church has to always be reforming itself according to the word of God. The Protestant Reformation was 500 years ago. That doesn't mean that we can sit back and just take it easy. Sometimes, according to truth and truths of Scripture, a church needs to reform and change, not for the sake of change, but to be biblical. In short, a church and its members should never stop asking, is what we're doing biblical? And if it is, are we doing it biblically? A church that constantly seeks to answer both of those questions, yes, is a church less at risk to being led astray. So we said that because the church has been given the truth, the church must guard against straying and being led astray. And so we mentioned two ways that that happened, right? Abandoning a a commitment to Scripture. And then the second way was we we don't examine, we don't expend the effort, that there's a a lack of uh, examining what's being taught. But then I think there's one final way that that we want to close with. A way a church is led astray is when it takes its focus off of Jesus. When the focus on Jesus is lost, 
Listen, when anything becomes more attractive than, than Jesus, it's not because Jesus is, has become less attractive. When anything becomes more glorious, more beautiful, more satisfying, more worthy, it's not because Jesus has somehow become less glorious, less beautiful, less satisfying, or less worthy. When we take our focus off of Christ... That is when we are well on our way to being led astray. You see, the church has not simply been given truth, some an anomalous body of this, just truth, but we've been given truth, and that truth paints the portrait of who Jesus is. The Scriptures show us who Christ is. We have been given Christ who is Himself truth. And so one way that we can guard against straying is for all of us to behold Christ, to look at Christ, see Him for who He is, praise Him for what He's done, love Him because He first loved us. Let us bless Him because it is by Christ alone that we are saved, by grace alone, through faith alone. The more beautiful and the more glorious Christ is to us, the less beautiful and the less glorious anything else will be. The less we want some newfangled thing, the less we want to move on, the less we want to stray. The reality is when you see Jesus for everything that He is, not only will you not stray, but you won't want to stray. Jesus is so good and beautiful that when you see Him, everything pales in comparison. When we as a church set our eyes on Jesus and somebody starts knocking, hey, look over here, I got something cool for you. You say, no, 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 no. Do you see what I see? I'm not looking away for a second. And this is why it matters. How do we behold Christ? How do we see Him? How do we have that clear picture of Him? We see Him through His Word. We see Him through the Gospel. We see Him through the truth that has been given to us. So you see, it's not so much about guarding truth for truth's sake. It's because we want to make sure that when we talk about Jesus and when we're looking at Jesus and when we're beholding Jesus and gazing on Jesus, that we're seeing Him as He really is. Have you ever seen a celebrity look alike? Some of them are really good. They're really close. But no matter how close they might be, they're not the real thing. So if we want to guard the truth, we don't want to look at a celebrity impersonator Jesus. We don't want to look at this Jesus or that Jesus. We want to see the Jesus who is. The truth that has been entrusted to us. Those are the, the brush strokes that paint the portrait of our beloved Savior. So because we've been given the truth, we must guard against straying and being led astray. Why? Because we don't want to lose sight of Christ. That's the most important thing. As we come to a time of response, maybe this is a, a time for you to acknowledge that 
well, that, that you're not really concerned about truth. It's something that doesn't bother you whether what we teach or, or what's, what's taught is, is right or good or true, and, and you haven't examined it. Um, and maybe this is a, a chance for you to ask the Lord to, to give you wisdom and insight and energy and to examine these things. But maybe this is a time for you to say, I've lost focus of Christ. I've gotten my eyes off him. I've been focusing on on my own life, the things I've got going on, you know, soccer games, sports, activities, all these things. And it's been a long time since I've seen Jesus and just enjoyed him and just gazed at him. And maybe this is a moment where we talk about, we've been talking about the Reformation and, and God's grace to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you Maybe you need to respond and just behold him again. Maybe you've never seen him before. Maybe you don't know Jesus. I want you to know that the Bible says that those who don't know Jesus are not in a good place, and they're not going to a good place. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you are a sinner. You've disobeyed God. You have rebelled against him, and you are his enemy. And God has a place for his enemies where they will spend all of eternity when they die. And that is a place called hell. That is your destination right now. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. He never rebelled against his father. And he went to a cross. And on that cross, God poured out his wrath and his judgment and his justice towards my sin and the sins of of those that God had chosen before the foundation of the world, and maybe that was you, and you feel God pulling on your heart to say, I want to see this Jesus. I want to know this Jesus. If that's you, this is the time to come and talk to me and say, I want to know that Jesus that you've been talking about who's beautiful, glorious, loving, gracious. I want to be forgiven of my sins. If you want to do that, come talk to me as we respond to what we've heard. So let's take a moment and spend some time in prayer responding to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, bless this time of response. God, maybe there's ways totally unrelated to the message that you desire to work in our hearts or to convict us of our sin. God, in whatever way that is, Lord, would you move powerfully and may we be quick to listen and obey. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.